This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Surely, don't worry, we're not going to talk about it at all. Uh, instead, forget England, we're going to talk about Scotland on the podcast today. If you were listening to Ruth Davidson on the uh, episode last Thursday, you'd have heard her scolding me, not really understanding all of this union business and what really goes on in Scotland and all of that. So what we thought we'd do, we've got Kieran Andrews, the Times Scottish political editor. Uh, he's going to come in and tell us five things we really need to know about Scottish politics so you'll be all clued up by the end of that. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. Uh, it's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. So we've just uh, been hearing from Gareth Southgate giving his uh, reaction uh, to uh, the defeat last night to Italy, but reconfirming he's just a class act, isn't he, Libby? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, extraordinary class act. And I have to say, I mean, I was watching last night sort of with a cat on my lap, kind of clutching this poor cat, so it squeaked. Um, but uh, you watch the Italian, the Italy manager, and, and his wild gestures and his hands flailing and his scowls and his and his agony, you know, could sympathise with him. But then you look at Gareth Southgate and there he is kind of calm, just a slight sort of scowl and a slight little nod here and there. And I do love a calm chap and I think I've loved the the feeling of it all and the England team and the the hugging and the you know just that that whole sort of sense of of comradeship and of of decency about it so so it's been yeah Southgate he, he's a he has a lot of credit to take for all that yeah you yeah having watched him last night you definitely wouldn't want to play poker against him uh given if he if he can <laughs> with the world's you know watching him he cannot flinch uh, when either a goal was scored or not, it was quite uh, it was quite something. Um, let's fo- let's um, reflect, uh, Rachel, on some of his remarks about uh, we've been a beacon of light in bringing people together, but obviously not everyone. And s- some of the disgusting racist abuse which has been uh, aimed at some of his players overnight. What can we do about that? Well, the first thing to say is he's right that this team has been a kind of beacon of light and a sort of symbol of inclusivity, tolerance, all those things that he wrote about in that brilliant letter. Uh, And those three players who missed the penalties are absolutely part of that. You think of those, what they've done, Marcus Rashford, how much money he's raised, how he's changed lives for all those millions of children who are hungry. Uh, And, you know, this abuse is just completely... 
you know, it's just not where the majority of the public is, I think. And I do think um, it also makes the point that all these politicians who are criticising the players for taking the knee, well, actually, you know, these players have got a point and by doing things like that, that is taking a stand against that racism. Um, but I think the social media companies need to take much more responsibility. You know, they're very good at targeting all of us with adverts for the favourite dress we might have once looked at online. They managed to track that down and send it to us, um, speaking personally. So they, why on earth can they not deal with this racist abuse? Those people, there shouldn't be anonymity. Uh, so people should be identified so they can be prosecuted if they're racist and they should be banned. Uh, and also the social media companies, if they should um, be fined if they allow this sort of thing to happen. Uh, they are publishing stuff that we as a newspaper would never be allowed to publish rightly. Um, so there needs to be much tougher action on them and much tougher action on the people who put this stuff out there. And they shouldn't be able to hide under the cloak of anonymity. I think this is this is all obviously absolutely right that uh, the the anonymity is absurd and it has been absurd for ages. But what is annoying me slightly is the incredible publicity that is being given to these gits who sort of put up monkey emojis and the, and the rest of it because lots and lots the, the, the internet is all full of stories of people sort of laughing together on tubes and people applauding and a girl wrapped in the Italy flag and um, you know it, it, there's not a lot of of uh, there are not a lot of really, really horrible morons around. You know, they are there and they should be tracked down and they should be banned from, the, you know, prosecuted and banned from social media and so on. But we are making, we are kind of blowing it up enormously into Britain is still evil. And I think this is a really wrong thing to do. Mm. I think you're right, Libby, actually, that you can't, to give them publicity is a mistake. Um, it's like I think there was a I saw there was a streaker rushed onto the pitch last night and they don't show that, do they? Because they don't want to give publicity. It's a sort of these idiots are the equivalent of that, but obviously a much more sinister version. But I think you know, obviously you shouldn't. They should be prosecuted, but they also shouldn't be, in a sense, given that oxygen of publicity. What about the, the politics of this? Because you've got Boris Johnson and Priti Patel out saying this is, you know, condemning people uh, posting racist abuse. But they were willing to side with the people who were booing the taking of the knee only a mm. couple of weeks ago. Libby? Oh, everybody makes a complete idiot fool of themselves sometimes, don't they? So maybe politicians should be allowed the occasional <laughs> absolute moronic stupid public statement and should go home and slap themselves around the face repeatedly till they feel better. What do you think, Rachel? Is it, it, would, well, it, would it have been the, better if there had been a slightly more consistent line on this from the government? Well, they, they said that stuff about taking the knee because they are trying to play this culture war. And I think that's a really dangerous game. They wanted to, um, they're trying to sort of pander to some elements of um, nastiness in the culture war uh, and by kind of criticising the players who were taking the knee, which is absolutely their right and their choice. And you see the abuse they receive. You can understand why they do it and the other players who in solidarity with those who receive abuse um, and then for politicians to get involved in criticizing it's it's them kind of playing to the worst you know parts of the country in a way that is you know it's really not what politicians should be doing they should be fighting against that and this morning um, GB News have got hold of a, a WhatsApp message from the Tory MP Natalie Elphick which was sent around 
other Tory MPs uh, last night saying they lost. Would it be ungenerous to suggest Rashford should have spent more time perfecting his game and less time playing politics? I mean, you've interviewed Marcus Rashford, haven't you, uh, (laughs) Rachel? I don't think the two um, are at odds with one another. He plays a huge amount. I interviewed him just before Christmas and about uh, he was campaigning for Fair Share, which is a food poverty charity, which we were raising money for with the Times. And he'd just come from training. He'd done absolutely masses of football. You know, I'm sure he's practiced penalties endlessly. They're not um, at odds with one another. In fact, I'd say they're, you know, to build your character in one way is going to build your character to build your character off the pitch is going to build your character on the pitch. And it's just ridiculous to just because he managed to defeat the Tory party on um, free school meals and for churlish Tory MPs to criticise him is just That's, absurd. Yeah, Libby, it's, Libby. It's, it's funny. I mean, it's actually funny that the thought, you know, that any, um, I can't think of any MP who could actually kick a ball without falling over themselves, <laughs> <laughs> telling Marcus Rashford to train better. Um, I think everyone can see the absurdity in it. Yes, it might have been better if Natalie Elphick had spent more time perfecting her politics and less time commenting <laughs> on the game. Uh, or would it be ungenerous to uh, Would it be ungenerous She's in to the wrong that? shoes as well. <laughs> <laughs> I will see um, how that... And just what, what do you think overall... Um, uh, what would be the impact on, on politics of all of this? Are the two things separate? Uh, would it be better, actually, if politicians did keep out of uh, football altogether? Um, I suppose, we'd have been, had England won last night, we'd have been asking the question, will there be a bounce in the polls and who, who benefits from that? Or are the two things separate and it's better that way, uh, Libby? I, I think pretty much separate. The interesting thing about it, though, is that politicians have to be aware of and, and following and understanding the national mood. And I think the whole England thing has been really important because England, it's been quite difficult to talk about England now among the four nations of, of the UK because you always sound like Sir Bufton Tufton and everybody thinks you want to get on a horse and gallop after a fox. you know. But actually a sense of Englishness and that Englishness is now a diverse sort of team-building um, interracial, cheerful, hopeful, victorious, well-mannered thing is has been magic. And so I think they can't sort of step right away from that. I think for them to applaud and love the England team is something they should do because it's, it's a positive thing, which has uh, been happening in the consciousness, if you like, of, of the country. Rachel? What I thought was that they, the problem is when the politicians try to harness that positive mood for their own purposes so you had some Tory MPs sort of taking bits of Gareth Southgate's letter about his father his grandfather in the war and that form of patriotism (laughs) and saying oh right he's one of ours and then you had the left (laughs) taking the bit about tolerance and inclusivity and say oh he's one of ours actually England is all of those things and both of those things and that's what's been great about this team but it is interesting that it's the England flag now whereas in 19... 66 it was the union jack wasn't it and that is a sign of how um the union is 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 changing evolving and there is this sense of english identity but what i thought i think libby's absolutely right it's not a sort of nationalistic um you know xenophobic little englander it's a it's a tolerant inclusive england that this team showed yeah, and hopefully we can focus on all of that. We've had loads of messages in uh, reflecting both uh, what both of you have been saying. My favourite, I think, is someone's texted in saying, surely there must be a huge majority in favour of scrapping anonymity. And they haven't put their name on it. Debbie Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Of course, you can read in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to the times.co.uk. Times Red Box. Up next, what you really need to know about Scottish politics. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, notebooks at the ready. This is what you really need to know about Scottish politics. You may remember, if you were listening last week, we had the uh, Ruth Davidson, the former Scottish Conservative leader, on, and she ticked me off a couple of times uh, about, well, I think it started with Northern Irish politics. I was getting that all wrong. And then she told me what, what people like me get wrong about Scottish politics. I think the, the issue that people like you... Um, and I say that in the broadest sense and without any sort of pejorativeness, misunderstand, is that the biggest issue on any given day isn't the Constitution. So, is she right? And what else should we be talking about? What we're going to talk about now is we're going to try and give you five things you need to know about Scottish politics, joined by the man who knows, Kieran Andrews, the Times Scottish political editor, who is with me in the studio. Morning, Kieran. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I appreciate you flying down from Scotland just for this. Well, absolutely. I wouldn't miss it for the world. (laughs) So, uh, let's kick off then with uh, the first thing, which is partly what's going to annoy Ruth, because we're we're doing it in the order of greatest irritation to Ruth Davison. On the question of um, uh, a Scottish independence referendum, is there, what is the time, where are we on the question? Because lots of people sort of become, that's a bit like a Scot- uh, football tournament, when people get very into Scottish politics, we, there's an election, and then we forget all about it again until the next one comes around. Yeah, they, they put the flags over the top of their suits and everyone gets very <laughs> excited. So wh- what is the current state of Scottish politics? Scottish politics is kind of on hiatus to a degree, certainly constitutional politics. After the Holyrood election, Nicola Sturgeon had said that she was going to have 100 day, the first 100 days of government, which included parking the referendum, was going to focus on rebuilding from the pandemic. Nicola Sturgeon wants a, a second independence referendum before the end of 2023, which means realistically autumn 2023, which isn't actually that far away. And the chances of that happening seem vanishingly small at the moment, mostly because Boris Johnson has said he doesn't want a, he will not agreed to another referendum, powers of the Constitution are reserved to um, the UK Parliament. And the only way that to get around that is a potential court challenge. That takes time. And then, so if you consider going through, you know, we get we get to the... Nicola Sturgeon doesn't start asking for a referendum at the earliest until the back end of this summer. Boris Johnson says no. Even if you go straight to court, you've got to wait to go to court. 
wait for the result, the hearings, the the judgment, and then agree the question timetable and hold a referendum doesn't seem likely. Well, let's have a listen. This was uh, Nicola Sturgeon setting out her timetable for a second independence referendum uh, back in May. I also said in this election I wanted to give people in Scotland the choice of independence and I intend to do that when we are out of the crisis. The legislation, if a referendum is to be delivered within the first half of this parliament, which is my preference, Covid permitting, uh, we have to introduce the legislation in a time frame to facilitate that happening. But, you know, Downing Street Boris Johnson has repeatedly said uh, that uh, they won't give in to it. This was Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove speaking to The Telegraph a week or so ago making clear that he can't see that happening anytime soon. Um, I think it's, it's foolish to talk about a referendum now. We're recovering from COVID. We are still uh, dealing with the health uh, challenges that the COVID crisis has generated. And it seems to me to be at best reckless, at, um, at worst folly, to try to move the conversation on to constitutional division when people expect us to be working together in order to deal with these challenges. So that is pretty clear. Your position is there will be no referendum before the 2024 election. I can't see it. Uh, that was Michael Gove speaking to the Daily Telegraph in the chill-out zone of a nightclub uh, for reasons that we're not explain. No, this is just some music uh, that they used on that clip. So the thing we need to know about Scottish politics is everyone has spoken for so long that if... Uh, Nicola Sturgeon wins the uh, elections in May 2021, there will be a second referendum. The thing we need to know is there probably won't be. Probably won't be. for Well, a lot of it depends on, on two things, actually. One is if the Scottish Government does take the UK Government to court over this, a lot of it will depend on the judgment of the Supreme Court. There's a lot of people in the UK Government very confident that they would win that case. There are others, you know, kind of um, senior unionist... Um, constitutional lawyers who who think that actually it's not quite as cut and dried as that the other thing that will be really important will be the next general election whenever that's held I talked about you know we get to the point where we might know constitutionally whether the Scottish government can hold its own referendum by you know the back end of 2023 suddenly then if there's a general election happening either just before that or quite soon afterwards that becomes another crunch point another another key moment in terms of whether or not um, Scottish voters will express a wish and a will for a second independence referendum because that's that's kind of what's missing just now. Most polls show that voters, even if they're sympathetic towards independence, some of them, most of them don't think that now is the right time, which is why the UK government's kind of not, not now line works and holds because it resonates and it's captured the public mood. If that changes, then everything's back up in the air again. Uh, thanks so much, Kevin Andrews. So the first thing is, Indu F2 not happening anytime soon. Right, let's move on to, to the sort of the next thing we need to know about what's going on in Scottish politics. And one of the reasons why Downing Street, the Conservatives, are so reluctant to commit to a second referendum is they're not confident they would win it, uh, not least because they're not sure who would uh, run it, who would be uh, you know overseeing it. And Downing Street's been through several versions of uh, its its efforts to save the union. Uh, Boris Johnson even appointed himself the Minister of the Union as he tried to uh, uh, amp up the, or ramp up the pro-union rhetoric, rhetoric at every opportunity. Because it is time we unleashed the productive power, not just of London and the South East, but of every corner of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The awesome foursome that are incarnated in that red, white and blue flag, who together are so much more than the sum of their parts. 
Uh, so that was Boris Johnson, I think, on the steps of Number 10 when he became Prime Minister. But the the, the unionist movement in general and the Downing Street op- uh, operation in particular has really struggled with the pro-union case, isn't it? Well, it's funny hearing Boris Johnson there talk about flags because that has been such a... You know, a recurring motif for the UK government in recent times talking about this kind of muscular unionism. We'll we'll invest some money in a project and drape a, a union flag on it, and that will that will strengthen support for the UK. And what the UK government's latest move, or Downing Street's latest move, to try and strengthen support for the unions to bring in a guy who most people have never heard of called Mark McInnes. He was the or is still the director of the Scottish Conservatives, and we weave in that post to go be a special advisor on Number Ten. Now, Mark McInnes was one of Team Ruth Davidson, you know, um, who's very influential in the strategy that saw the Scottish Conservatives have a, have a relative resurgence in, in Scotland. And he's been brought in to try and, you know, impart some of that wisdom on Downing Street. Now, the, the interesting thing about this is in the 2016 election, when the Tories kind of broke through in Scotland, they had a, a no-flags policy. So how, how these, um, these strategies coexist will be, you know, quite interesting and key. That's an interesting development, because when I asked Ruth Davidson last week if she would become Scottish Secretary in Boris Johnson's Cabinet, uh, she replied, no chance. So she completely sort of knocked that one on the head, uh, in part, I think, because she wants a life, and partly because she still doesn't totally see eye to eye with Boris Johnson. Is this a sign, sign that Number 10 is getting its act together? They finally realised that installing Westminster people in, in these jobs doesn't work, and actually people who know Scotland... Scotland and Scottish politics is what's needed. Well, it certainly feels like a, a bit of a moment of clarity. You know, you had um, Luke Graham, the former MP, who was in there before he was sacked, and he, he was a, a Scottish MP, um, but then he was sacked, and, and and it's just been a turnover of people in Whitehall who seem to know, who seem to think that they know best about, about Scotland. So bringing in someone like Mark McInnes, I mean, who knows if it worked with Davidson in an interview with... Uh, with with the Times just after he was appointed, said that he'll be a great hire, but only if Boris Johnson listens to him. And I think that's that is the key and interesting thing. And McInnes has delivered um, advice that Down Street's listened to before with poor polling, and they got rid of Jackson Carroll, the former Scottish Conservative leader, not long after that. So there is every reason to suspect he will be influential, and that uh, could well um, increase support for the union. Right, we are looking at five things you need to know about Scottish politics. Uh, Kim and Andrews, let's turn our attention to the opposition parties. How, you know, Scottish politics is just sort of dominated by uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP, with a bit of Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, thrown in uh, for good measure. But there were other parties involved, of course. Uh, during the Holyrood elections, uh, Scottish Labour tried to keep out of the constitutional uh, issues. This was the leader, Anna Sarwar, saying the pandemic, the pandemic recovery was the key issue. What people are going to see already tonight is bickering about old arguments, which is people's own interests, not the national interests. Because the mistake that both Douglas Ross and Nicola Sturgeon are both making is they only want to focus on the half of the country that agrees with them. And I think if you speak to people right across the country, what they are worried about right now isn't actually the date of a referendum. What they're worried about right now is keeping their loved ones safe, getting access to the vaccine, their children's education and mental health. They're worried about if and when they're going to have a job to go back to. They're worried about the cancelled operation or the failure to get a cancer diagnosis. They're worried about the planet that we're going to leave for our children and our grandchildren. That's what this election campaign should be all about. That was Anna Sawa back in the election campaign. However, we've we've heard many times from the the Scottish polling guru, Professor Sir John Curtis, who says that too often the opposition parties are too preoccupied uh, with just attacking Nicola Sturgeon without any great success. Truth is that the opposition parties 
have indeed tried to do their damnness to try to bring Miss Sturgeon down. In truth, that seemed to be their principal objective rather than necessarily being concerned about the ways in which indeed the harassment procedure perhaps was flawed in conception and certainly flawed in operation. So, Kim and Andrews, what do we need to know about the opposition parties? What current state are they in? Have they, even after all these years of SNP dominance, they haven't really worked out what to do about them? They haven't, and both the Scottish Conservatives and Scottish Labour are starting from almost, not quite, but almost blank canvases following this election. Both have relatively new leaders in Douglas Ross and Anas Sarwar. Both have pretty much empty backroom teams that they're trying to fill at the moment, and the people they appoint there will will signal the kind of direction they're going to take. But both have quite big opportunities as well. The Scottish Conservatives held all their seats at the at the last election, which was um, seen as a good result for them, albeit way, way, way back in, in second place, the SNP dominant, obviously. Um, and now they will have to make the decision as to whether they want to continue to push hard on the Constitution to fire up that base in the way that they, they did successfully in May, or whether they want to broaden out and present themselves as an alternative party of government. Similarly, Scottish Labour, it seems a bit more clear-cut about where Anas Sarwar is taking the party. That rhetoric he showed at the election, trying to present himself as the reasonable, the kind of reasonable grown-up in the room. And again, he will want to be presenting policies that will win back mostly people who traditionally voted Labour in Scotland but shifted to the SNP and maybe support independence. He wants to draw them back on side. Because the, th- the thing is, the SNP, when they got into power in 2007, they did so after... Um, holding this this big kind of crisis summit where they decided that for too long they'd just been sniping and shouting, being negative at Scottish Labour, who were, who seemed all-powerful and all-conquering and would never be knocked out of government in Scotland. And the SNP put themselves forward as an alternative government, sneaked in 2007, and the rest, well, it, it's history. And it needs, the, oppos- the opposition parties need to, you know, if they want to have any sort of success, they need to take a, a, a leaf out of that book from the SNP and, and present themselves as somebody who could actually be in power rather than just people saying that the SNP, you know, picking at the SNP's flaws and saying what a bad job they're doing. And what's, what's the sort of uh, interaction between uh, Anna Sawa and Keir Starmer, Douglas Ross and Boris Johnson? Because Nicola Sturgeon obviously loves to paint everyone else as a sort of creature of Westminster. How far can they go in distance themselves from the leader? Are they trying to do that? Well, they're, they're quite different. In, in Keir Starmer... Anas Sarwar, somebody has a has a UK leader who he's broadly on the same page with. He 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 has said that Scottish Labour is an autonomous um, body. You know, Scottish Labour has never quite got over that branch office accusation that was thrown at it by its former leader Joanne Lamont when she quit after the independence referendum. So Anas Sarwar's trying to create a bit of distance, but it's not like it was when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge and there was a leader who was saying vastly different things that the Scottish Party saw as being unhelpful. Slightly different with Douglas Ross and, and Boris Johnson. Um, you know, the, Douglas Ross every so often has to pick a fight with the Prime Minister just to try and, you know, make it perfectly clear that the Scottish Conservatives are not falling and exactly is that, the same Is that way. all sort of uh, um, authorised and sanctioned by Number 10? Do they agree in advance what they're going to fall out about in public? I think it's probably a, probably a mixture, to be honest. Um, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily Douglas Ross's um, pushbacks against the Prime Minister are, are authorised but Downing Street definitely knows that this is something it's that's going to happen. Of, part of the game. But then we saw a few months ago um, in the run-up to the election, there's a wee bit there's some briefings to, to lobby journalists 
uh, from number 10 that were starting to get a bit, you know, a bit hacked off with Douglas Ross. You know, maybe he's not the right man for the job. And again, maybe that's all part of the game. Maybe that's in there to, to um, you know, just to talk up the issues. But, you know, D- Douglas Ross... He's only been there five minutes. Well, well, exactly. And, and he, I mean, he is the person who uh, quit as a... He was the only minister who quit over the Dominic Cummings Barnard Castle trip. So the idea that he just does things for show, because at that point he wasn't, he wasn't Scottish Conservative yeah. leader. It didn't look like Jackson Carroll was leaving. So, you know, he, he, he does things because he thinks that's what he should do. And, uh, you know, sometimes it'll be because it's politics. Sometimes it'll be because, you know, he, he believes in it. Uh, and should we should just touch on the Lib Dems. Previously, they used to, you know, be a, one of the dominant forces in Scottish politics. Where are they? Are they show, you know, they've got very excited in England about Chesham and Amersham and so on. Is there any sign of the Lib Dems, the great long-awaited Lib Dem fight back happening in Scotland? No. Right. Very good. Uh, right. <laughs> Uh, so the, I think the thing we've learned now is to sort of just keep an eye on, uh, particularly Anasawa and what he's uh, uh, both um, Anasawa and Douglas Ross and their, their their interactions with their own leaders and, and whether or not they can sort of chip away at the SNP. Let's move on to the, the fourth thing that we need to know about Scottish politics and uh, the interaction between the SNP and the Green Party. The SNP got the most seats, but not an overall majority, uh, but we're still in a position where they're still talking about what the deal is with the Green Party. Is that right? Yeah, so the SNP fell one seat short of an overall majority of so comfortable control, meaning that any any big folks' budgets and the like, they, they'll find a way to get through. Um, they've done that over the last few years, negotiating both with the Greens and actually with the, the, the Liberal Democrats. Um, now what's been talked about is, is making it a bit more formal with the Greens. They're avoiding talk of coalitions um, after you know, the, the Conservative uh, Lib Dem coalition. They're talking about a cooperation agreement, which is nice and wooly and vague. and means we don't really know what it will look like, although it could see a couple of Green MSPs becoming ministers. The, How is that not then a coalition? If, if they're voting together and they're sitting around the table, how is that different to a coalition? Is it purely semantics? It's entirely spin. Um, <laughs> um, but but again, I think I think that is because they don't know if that's what will happen yet. In fairness, if that if if it ends up with a couple of green ministers and they are all whipped by collective responsibility, and of course it's a coalition yeah. agreement. But it could be something looser than that, and it is is good PR ahead of COP twenty six. But the, which has been hosted in Glasgow, obviously, and you know for the Scottish government who feel a bit sidelined in all of this because the UK government event, the Scottish government have their own little venue just over the water to say, look at how great we are. So having the Greens in government would be a, a nice PR boost for them. So, but it will be interesting to see what policies they get through. And what's the time scale on this? Because obviously uh, the elections happen back in May. The Scottish Parliament has now risen for the summer mm. break, so there's no sort of pressing issue. But is there a point at which they need to have done a deal? But it, or is it just the case where the Greens are going to vote with them anyway? So yeah. there's not actually a, a crunch point? There, there's no crunch point. Talks are going on over the summer. I suspect if we don't have anything by early days after um, Holyrood comes back in September, then we're probably looking at there being no agreement because it feels like, what, what's the point in dragging it right through? But there's, there's, no, there's no rush, there's no uh, crunch end date on it. Uh, well, and the, the key thing is, and I remember speaking to, um, uh, I think, Jonathan Bartley the, 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 and Sean Berry from the Green Party in England. They make quite clear they are completely separate to the Green Party in Scotland uh, because the Green Party in Scotland, this is, let's take a listen to Patrick Harvey, leader of the Green Party in Scotland. Uh, he was making quite clear that they, they just agree with the SNP on the issue of independence. 
Our members decide uh, what our position is on independence, and they have consistently over many years, in fact in a, a larger uh, proportion over the years, uh, supported not only the principle of independence, but absolutely the democratic right of the people of Scotland to choose. And look, if there was a, a, a pro-union majority, uh, a, a majority from uh, Labour, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats opposed to independence, I would of course have to accept reluctantly mm. the democratic uh, legitimacy of saying there shouldn't be a, a referendum in this new session. All that's required is that they accept the same basic democratic principle uh, that the people of Scotland have made a decision about their parliament, their parliament will make a decision about a referendum, and then they will make a decision about their future. That was Patrick Harvey, the Green Party leader. Right, let's uh, move away from the Constitution, as Ruth Davison told me off uh, for uh, last week. Um, and focus on some of those domestic issues. In fact, let's take a listen uh, to... Uh, this is Ruth Davidson when she appeared on the show on Thursday, uh, making clear that the mistakes that people like I make are always focusing on the Constitution. The biggest issue on any given day isn't the Constitution. It's the fact that people in Scotland care about their kids' school. They care about the fact that the, you know, COVID has affected the health service to the point that the backlogs are a mile long and, and you turn a corner and then are a mile further down the road. They care about the fact that actually, you know, there's some really good businesses that went under or there's people hanging by a threat. You know, you know, the the idea that that Scotland is siloed and different, I think, is the is is the big issue. And and the idea that the constitution is the big Scottish issue all the time, it, it, it's just not. Uh, Kieran Andrews, I did point out to Ruth Davidson that as someone who fought several election campaigns entirely on the constitution we said no say no again and and all of that and i remember going and standing on the um uh sort of election events where ruth davidson was holding up placards to that effect so if anyone is responsible for constantly putting the constitution on the table the conservatives show us some of the blame for that including me's election just passed yes exactly exactly right. so but let's focus on those domestic issues because actually this feels like the area where there's most to gain for some of the opposition parties that we were just discussing because the SNP's domestic record on schools and hospitals uh, and whatever else isn't good. So how have they managed to continue to dominate so much in Scotland? Well, that, that's partly the area that Anas Sarwar was trying to move into during the election and, <clears throat> again, is showing that he's trying to move into uh, following that, you know, is to, is to concentrate on domestic issues, domestic policies. You know, the... the health service in Scotland has the same sort of issues that we're going to be seeing across the UK, a massive backlog of um, of, of operations, you know, cancer screenings and, and routine operations that are, you know, that is not going away. We've got three, last week, three hospitals in Scotland, three health boards in Scotland went into code black, which is effectively can't take any more patients because of the number of COVID cases. It's only going to increase that. There's a big problem with bed blocking before the pandemic and that's showing signs of coming back so there's real strains on the health service that are partly due to COVID but partly because of the way the health service is, is currently run. And, and schools has also been an issue for the SNP isn't it? Yeah um, this year was another, another um, crisis in terms of exam results I said there weren't exams it was just tests sat under conditions where you can't look at um, any notes and a teacher's observing you which sounds kind of like an exam the, the, the Scottish <laughs> government has scrapped um, its education body and its and its qualifications body, and has said it's going to push for some radical reforms. But they promised this after 2016 and backed down in the face of opposition from the education establishment and the unions. So it'll be a big challenge to see if they can, you know, if they can turn that round this time and 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 really prove, you know, if they can show why Scotland should be an independent country because they are running the domestic 
policies and you know the the big domestic issues very well, then that that would of course um, increase support for independence. Okay, so then looking ahead, when uh, the Scottish Parliament comes back in the autumn, uh, what should we? What's the single thing we should be looking out for? How can we impress our friends to say, well, the thing that, of course, the thing that you really need to look out for in Scottish politics is, well, this is going to say, this is going to anger, anger Ruth Davidson. It's going to be uh, the draft independence bill and what it says, how it's framed, whether it's going to the Supreme Court. That that's going to be the biggest battle over the over the coming months and years. Sorry, Ruth. Uh, we did try. <laughs> Kieran Andrews has been uh, a brilliant uh, insight for you to talk, talk us. So, it's, um, uh, so the five things we've learned, the timing on the Indy ref is really tricky. Uh, M- Boris Johnson needs to listen to Mark McInnes if he's going to try and get the sort of the union unit back on, on, the, sh- on the road. He's definitely one to watch. I just want to drop into your dinner parties with your friends. Uh, <laughs> uh, number three, the Labour Party seems to be back and trying to, you know, in a way that it hasn't been for a while. It, it certainly is got, that fair? It, it, it has an opportunity. The next five it years... Might are key, it, well, <laughs> it, it, it might be Well, it might be. I mean, it has, a, it has a reasonably credible UK leader and a, a credible Scottish leader. Uh, on uh, number four, uh, the co- uh, a co- when's a coalition not a coalition? When it's a cooperation agreement with the Green Party who get ministers and, and vote the way that they want to. Uh, and finally, uh, domestic policy does matter. Or, uh, but it possibly ought to matter uh, slightly more than it does because it's all about the the, uh, the second referendum. Kieran, it's lovely to see you. Kieran Andrews, uh, Scottish political editor of The Times. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. And uh, hopefully that was useful. Now you can impress your friends at dinner parties that you'll all be having with 200 people from uh, next week in England anyway. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.